to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find it on page 862 of uh, the blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. We are in week three of our four-Sunday vision campaign called Growing in Grace, Faithful Stewardship. And in week one, we laid out four gospel foundations that we said fuel our vision and mission, and their biblical community, and gospel grace and gospel healing, ministering to the least and the lost, and Jesus' last command to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, make disciples, make more of yourselves. Last week, we started talking about what we believe God is calling us to build on top of that foundation, not just a facility located at 21 Harristown Road, but a new community as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, joined together and rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. We turn to the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament who urged the people of God to rebuild the temple that had lain in ruins for decades. And this morning we'll turn to John chapter 4 in the New Testament to see how Jesus calls us not only to build a temple but to dig a well. John 4 starting in verse 4. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food." The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons? And his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I, see, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship, where we must worship, is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, 
you have revealed yourself and the person of your Son to us. And we pray that by your Spirit, enable us to have eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus once again saying to each one of us, I am He. I am Messiah. I am the one you seek. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. First, uh, we're going to look at how Jesus breaks barriers. The text um, tells us, now, he had to go through Samaria, verse 4. But Jesus didn't really need to go through Samaria. He was going from Judea up to Galilee. And um, he could have gone around, way around, just as almost every other Jew in the town would, uh, in the time would have done to avoid any kind of association, any kind of contact with the Samaritans. He didn't have to go through Samaria, which was actually the direct route uh, because of geography. He had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with this woman at the well. The previous chapter of John's gospel, John 3, arguably has the most uh, well-known verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that salvation statement from Jesus Himself is surprisingly wide open. It's surprisingly um, broad in its appeal, in its invitation. Who does God love? We might ask, and Jesus would give this answer. Most would figure the answer to that question, who does God love, is it's the good, the upright, the religious people, the ones who follow uh, obediently. But in the very next chapter of John's gospel, what we just read, Jesus' first example of who He loves is a racially mixed, socially marginalized, marginalized, religiously confused woman with a sketchy relational past. Jesus might have said, yes, disciples, I really did mean whoever believes in me. He breaks the gender barrier in this interaction. Uh, Men just didn't socialize with unrelated women. There would have been questions as to why, what was your intent he breaks social, relational, uh, social, religious, and racial barriers. Samaritans were um, half-breeds despised by the Jews. They mixed religion of the Jews with religion from other world, uh, world religions uh, in the uh, surrounding countries. They were syncretists. Jesus breaks moral standards. This uh, was a woman who the text tells us um, came about noon, end of verse 6, into verse 7. That was the heat of the day in, in a very hot climate. Uh, most women would have come first thing in the morning to provide uh, drinking water and cooking water for the family, and then they might return at the end of the day for water for an evening meal and maybe for washing. But she comes in the heat of the day at noon, probably to avoid the other women because her immorality would have been a good reason for gossip. Jesus engages her in conversation with no one around. He breaks moral barriers. What barriers in your own life do you ignore or maintain? 
to keep you nicely protected from the messiness of the world. Most of us would say, no, 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 we're, we're modern, educated, thoughtful, open-minded people. After all, we're, we're here at Grace Redeemer Church, a multi-ethnic church. We don't have those kinds of racial, ethnic, cultural prejudices. We don't have barriers. But sometimes, do you realize that you're the one who builds barriers between you and other people? You get angry towards, despise, scoff at, ridicule, inwardly dismiss, push away people who don't share your core values, or maybe have different political opinions. Think gun control, economic policies, immigration, race relations, even abortion. And even if you don't engage in social media warfare, in flinging Uh, nasty comments or um, passive-aggressive comments at one another, you allow a barrier to be raised when Jesus would have you break them down, love those who are different and think differently than you and I do. What barriers do you ignore in your life or maintain that allows you to stay comfortably away from the messiness of life? Other times, barriers naturally exist between you and other people. Uh, maybe you live very different lives. You were raised uh, in, in very different family um, dynamics, cultural norms, and you had very different standards of living all of your life compared to the person next to you. And here's a question for us to, a set of questions for us to consider. Do you know anyone who's ever been homeless? who's in the foster care system, who has or currently struggles with an addiction, someone with a criminal record. That, that's, that's just a smattering of what I mean by the messiness of life. Do, do you allow those barriers to simply stay? And that means you don't have to get involved in other people's mess because you feel like you have enough of your own. Those are the kinds of barriers that Jesus smashes in this encounter, evangelistic, missional encounter with the woman at the well with whom he had a divine appointment. He had to go through Samaria because the Father wanted him to meet this woman, break these barriers, and speak the gospel to her. If Grace Redeemer Church cultivates authentic biblical community, one of our gospel foundations we've talked about, then everything, that means everything that we are and everything that we have is gifted by God, is of gospel grace. It is not of ourselves, right? It's undeserved. It's freely given as a blessing from God. It, 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 it defines who our, our identity is not something we can say, this is what we have done. This is what we've accomplished. Our identity as a blood-bought people of God is this is what God has done, and we, that's why we use that word testify or testimony. We testify to what He has done. We, our lives, broken as they are, but being put back together, are evidence that God has done this. If all of that is the case, if gospel grace and gospel healing characterize us, then that, that central defining truth at the root of who we are eliminates any possibility, any grounds for superiority, any grounds for thinking highly of ourselves, whether it's skin color 
or education or financial success or marital status or political opinion. There are no grounds for superiority. And Jesus' encounter at the well is an example of um, this, as I'm putting it, a divine appointment with the most unlikely person. And as he meets with her the, um, and, and overflows the gospel, it, it, the same gospel that Jesus has come to proclaim compels us, calls us to love the world just as he did and still does to reach over and around and maybe smash those barriers in the interest of sharing gospel grace with the least and the lost. Secondly, um, as Jesus breaks down these barriers, He shows that He satisfies thirst. That's the metaphor of this entire encounter, right? Water and quenching of thirst. He starts the surprising conversation with a question, a request, will you give me a drink, verse 7. She's surprised. She knows how many barriers that he is stepping right over, violating in a sense. And Jesus answers, actually, you should be asking me for a drink uh, because I can give you living water. And she's interested. She perhaps at first plays along. And then in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still thinking at a physical and natural level. She's thinking, wow, wouldn't it be nice for me not to have to schlep all the way out of town with these uh, heavy jars and and then uh, walk back once or twice a day with them even heavier? Uh, Where can I get this living water? Living water was was moving water, right? It was fresher. It wasn't stagnant. Uh, All the more reason for her to be curious, interested, and But then Jesus says something that seems pretty rude in verse 16. Go call your husband and come back. What does that have to do with water? (laughs) Why does he say that? He knows she has no husband. He knows she's had five husbands. He says that not to condemn, but he says that out of an absolutely accurate diagnosis of her heart. He, he isn't worried about her parched mouth. He's interested in ministering to her parched soul to satisfy her withering heart with those striking words. And Jesus is pointing out what she considers of greatest worth, which is an issue of worship. What you place greatest worth in is what you worship, whether or not it has a religious connotation or not. That's what you worship. And if it's not God, it's a substitute for God, in which, uh, which we call idols. It's so interesting that in this divinely choreographed dance, the woman at the well responds with a comment about worship. Our ancestors worshiped at this mountain, verse 20, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. It, it, it seems like a non sequitur. It seems like, where did she come from? <laughs> you know, Jesus says, go call your husband, and she comes up with something out of left field as well. You know, if you're not going to make sense, I'm not, I'm not going to make sense. But this is a divinely choreographed dance. It's talking about water and worship. It's talking about what satisfies the deepest longing of your heart, which is an issue of worship. And um, if we pull back for just a minute from Jesus and this woman at the well, um, when he, let me first say, when, when he points out her false worship, He's accurately diagnosing that there are these elements of 
security and pleasure and status and belonging. She was looking for love in all the wrong places. She was chasing relationships to fulfill her, and one after another, they left her more alienated from God, from others, even from her own heart. When you realize how your substitute gods, your idols, fail to provide what you long for, that realization doesn't mean you suddenly lose your desire for status and belonging and intimacy and pleasure. What it often means is either you all the more desperately in futility keep searching for love, for example, in all the wrong places, or you begin to despair. This is the only direction you know to search for, and you haven't found it, and that is a dead end of the soul. But this is Jesus' answer to the woman at the well and to us as we realize how many things and people we allow to take God's place as the only source of joy and satisfaction and pleasure. Jesus says, verse 26, I am He. I'm the one you've been searching for all your life. I'm the one your heart desperately desires. I am the satisfaction of your deepest soul's thirst. I am He. And when she places her faith in Jesus, we know that from the rest of the chapter, He becomes husband number seven. She's had five. She's living with a guy, not her husband. Jesus becomes husband number seven, the biblical number of perfection and completion. What she has searched for and never found, Jesus says, I can provide you with everything you long for. I can complete you, fulfill you, give you security and love you forever. Isn't that what your heart has desired? I, the one speaking to you, am he. Gospel words. But he doesn't just love her as she is, flaws and all. He also, we know, he also pays the ultimate penalty for all of her sin. He is the Holy One of Israel. He can't just ignore all of the mistakes that she's ever made in order to love her. He hangs on that cross and suffers hell in the place of this woman who believes that He is her Messiah, her Lord, her Savior. And when He hangs there, so striking at the end of this Gospel of John, He will say, I am thirsty. How can the one who is living water himself say, I am thirsty? Makes no sense. Unless he has taken her place, the one who was parched, the one whose soul could never be quenched by anything that she was searching after. Jesus takes her place. She's the thirsty one. But he says, I will suffer hell in your place. I will be the thirsty one. And give you living water to satisfy so that forever love in perfect relationship could become his gift to her. That's the gospel. How beautiful it is. A love story at its core. Lastly, digging wells. How can we apply some of this to ourselves here at Grace Redeemer Church? Last week, when we looked at the prophet Haggai, 
in the Old Testament, I said that it's not appropriate to use that prophet's message as a biblical mandate to build or buy a church facility. We can't use it that way. There are some very relevant um, questions that come out of Haggai that we can still ask ourselves today, and we did that at the end of the message. Um, but Josh alluded to this already uh, in his worship leading. The, the biblical answer as to why we can't use Haggai for that purpose is that Jesus, when He comes, two chapters earlier, John chapter 2, He says, I am the new temple. I have come to fulfill everything that the temple uh, represented to God's people, the place of His meeting, um, the place where uh, worship was supposed to be located. Jesus has fulfilled that. And so now, God's people and God's worship are no longer specifically drawn to a particular place in a particular city named Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus even says to the woman, verse 21, a time is coming and has now come when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. No, no, no. Worship isn't any longer located in a specific place. Worship is not restricted to temple with priests and sacrifices. And, and so, with all of that backdrop, we, we, we are saying that buying 21 Harristown Road can't have the same kind of biblical mandate that rebuilding the temple had. But, having said that, the Scriptures still describe something very distinct and something God-blessed in the unique gathering of the people of God in the context of worship. Can you worship God at home? Absolutely, and you should. But can you replace um, corporate worship in the gathering of God's people with worshiping anywhere else that you uh, prefer? No. There's something unique in the gathering of God's people. We do need a new home to which we can invite people whom God is seeking, verse 23. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We we do need a a new home to which... um, uh, we can Im- uh, in, in which we can imitate the, the function of the original temple, which drew the nations to worship of the one true God, which was attractional and missional at the same time. That's the context in which we're saying, as a church, we need to build God's temple. And Jesus here in John chapter 4 helps us also to see we need to be digging wells. The well in an ancient community was a primary gathering place. Um, It was where basic needs were met, water for drinking, cooking, washing. It was a place where life was shared and uh, relational connections were strengthened. Uh, Everyone in the community had to go to the well, or someone from each family at least. It happened every day, sometimes uh, twice a day, not just once a week. And um, Jesus' evangelistic encounter, obviously here, didn't happen at the temple in Jerusalem, which was still there, or in a synagogue, or in a church. He met the woman where she was. He, he went to her place of familiarity. He entered into an ordinary, everyday experience, fetching water, and filled it with eternal significance. The result was more than personal conversion. The result was community transformation, Later on in verse 39, uh, John will tell us, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It spread. It overflowed. And here's the question that I'd like us to consider. Can we make our new home 
our hoped-for new home, a community place for the neighborhood? Can we dig a well, even in the church building, in a sense, that offers refreshment, that meets people's basic needs, a well to which neighbors might be drawn? What's so important to understand about the well, any well in any neighborhood, is, is that it's a familiar place, a most familiar place, a place of comfort, a place to which you'd go without thinking, as opposed to the temple or, in contemporary times, the church. Uh, a lot of people are allergic to religious institution and formal gatherings that are religious. They won't come to uh, the church, the, the, the modern analogy of the temple. But will they go to a well? Absolutely. How could they not to meet their needs? And when we talk about being rooted in a community, owning a home, putting down roots, right? We, we all get that metaphor. When we talk about the rootedness that owning a building can provide for the long term, here's another question. Could many more of us join others in nearby communities at their wells? at their hangouts and recreation centers, and fill common, ordinary activities with eternal significance as each of us overflows gospel grace. And if we dig a well at Harristown Road, can it become a place that tells a story that we're a welcoming community, <clears throat> that we exist for ourselves, uh, for others and not for ourselves? <clears throat> Wouldn't it be wonderful to share our building with neighbors, to um, to share it with the township itself, to benefit, for example, inner-city, under-resourced kids and families right across the river in Patterson. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our place could tell a story in the community to be a well, maybe a gym in which kids would come and play and have recreation programs? Kids would come to play ball far sooner than they would join the youth group. It's the difference between a well and a temple, a familiar place, a place that meets needs, and something that at first at least seems foreign. Immigrants might come right away to learn English, English as a second language, far sooner than they would show up to learn the Bible. Neighbors would come very easily, if this was a convenient place for a township-wide meeting, far sooner than they would show up at a worship service. Do we need to build a temple? Absolutely. To draw the nations as a place of ministry, headquarters. But we also need to dig a well to enter into people's lives in the ordinary, common, everyday experiences, to meet them where they are. <clears throat> and that might all sound great. You might all agree uh, as members of Grace Redeemer's community. But well digging and a well digging mentality requires an uncomfortable and sacrificial laying down of rights. What do I mean by that? You go home this afternoon and don't have anybody over, you can wear whatever you want. <laughs> you can um, put on your, your uh, old tired sweats, um, and you can put whatever channel you want on that television, and you can munch on whatever you want as you're watching the Giants lose yet another game. You can put whatever music you want, or, or you can have a house that is dead quiet, unless you have little people, in which case that daydream goes out the window very quickly. But it's your place. 
you do with as you please. On the other hand, if you have somebody over for dinner, or certainly overnight as a guest, you lay aside personal preference, don't you? You die to self. You don't think to yourself, um, I want chicken wings for dinner, and you put chicken wings on the table. You ask your guest, um, you know, if they have any food preferences, food allergies, um, food avoiding things. If you're going to sit down uh, uh, and, and, and play some music, uh, you might ask what kind of music they prefer. That's a well-digging kind of mentality. And when you experience personal loss, you don't get to watch what you want, listen to what you want, and eat what you want. Isn't your experience so often that your loss is more than made up with the gain of rich friendship, of shared life together, which delights God whose character is being imitated? We've been made in His image, and when we act like that, we, we reflect His glory as a relational and loving God who gives of, himself, gives of Himself to other people. Lots of us have given, and lots of us will give sacrificially to enable Grace Redeemer Church to purchase this new building. And then the temptation very well might become thinking that it's our home to fully enjoy. And, and there's, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it will be our home to fully enjoy. But there will be times when our selfish desires lose out, quote-unquote, to missional mandates, to well-digging. Some parts of the facility might not be available when even your internal ministry wants to use all these rooms because we're using it for outreach or community relationships. In other words, to dig a well and to invite the neighbors. And the question we'll need to keep asking ourselves will be, whose church is this? The answer has nothing to do with financial contributions. The answer has everything to do with the reality that this is God's temple, and He calls us to use it for His salvation purposes, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that then, all who are lost will know and be able to sing, Christ will hold me fast. Let's pray. Lord, the only reason we stand here with this dream closer today than it certainly was even a few months ago of having a new home, the only reason we have that dream is that you hold us fast. You will never let us go. The only reason you hold us fast is because you sacrificed yourself that we might be free from shame and guilt and death. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus. I praise you for all of the divine appointments you've made with uh, all of your followers, all of your people, your sons and daughters, to draw us to yourself and all the many appointments that you have remaining to reveal the wonder of your love and to rescue sinners as we place our faith in you more and more. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.